I'm Aubrey, Aubrey Spears, and I'll be teaching this series. And um, I, I'm, I'm really kind of shocked that this group is here. I, I knew that we would have a lot of people show up when we talked in the fall about sex. But um, I wasn't convinced that if we told Americans we were going to talk about money as an idol, any of us would want to ever show up. So um, here we are. There's going to be five sessions. Uh, um, tonight, next Sunday night, and then just so you know, we'll take a week off. And then there'll be three weeks after that. Uh, the outline for our time together is on a flyer. If it was on the table back there, and I'll talk about that here in a bit. Um, please feel free to take one or two. And if you decide what we talk about tonight is helpful, or that it might be helpful for a friend of yours or for family then uh, feel free to invite them uh, to the weeks ahead. Each night, there's going to be three parts to our time together. I'll teach for anywhere from 35 to 55 minutes, depending on the night. And then we'll break up into groups, and we'll process a little bit. And then we'll come back together as a large group for a Q&A, and we'll wrap up by 7.30. Now, if you're new to our building and you need the facilities, they're right through that door over there. I think that's all the housekeeping. Let's begin with prayer. Father in heaven, thank you for sending your son to rescue us from this present evil age. Thank you for bringing us into the kingdom of your son. Please help us tonight as we learn from your word. Help us to see that you really have rescued us and that you reshape us to bear witness to your kingdom, which has come and is coming and will come in glorious consummation. Help us to see and believe that together. In Jesus' name, amen. If you brought along a copy of the Bible, and I would encourage you to do that uh, in the weeks ahead, find the book of Joshua. It's the sixth book in the Bible, and in my Bible, it happens to be one-sixth of the way through the Bible. It's on page 214 in my Bible. Joshua. Now, very close to the beginning of the book of Joshua, we have the story of Rahab. If any of you went with our church on retreat last year, uh, Robbie Holt, our speaker, talked about this story, and I'm going to uh, take a note from him. Rahab was a prostitute living in the city of Jericho. And Jericho was powerful. And it was wealthy. And it was a walled city. And one day, Rahab meets outsiders, undocumented citizens. And they're spies. 
Israelite spies. And Israel is the enemy of Jericho. So these spies, the, these enemies of her people, what does Rahab do with them? Well, she does a very strange thing. She hides them from her fellow Jerichoites who are looking for them to kill them. And while she's hiding them in Joshua chapter 2, verse 9, she tells these Israelites, I know that your God has given this land to you. Because I've heard how he dried up the Red Sea before you, how he destroyed the kings who stood against you, and we're terrified because we know that your God is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. So Rahab says, and I'm paraphrasing, please swear that you will spare my family and me when you conquer our country. Now, this might seem like an odd place to start, exploring issues of money and economics from a Christian perspective. But last year, Robbie convinced me, my friend, that this is a great place to start in Scripture. You see, Rahab lived in a kingdom, Jericho. And Jericho had its own rules and its own rulers and its own economic policies and its own social arrangements. And of course, it had its own God. Rahab's entire life had been shaped by that kingdom, the kingdom of Jericho. And although, if her job as a prostitute is any indication, the, the Jericho regime hadn't exactly been friendly to her. But then one day, Rahab looks out her window. And she sees another kingdom coming. Another kingdom invading. A kingdom led by a different king, a different ruler, with a different set of rules, and a different economic policy. And even if she could bring herself to believe it, this other kingdom had a God strong enough to overcome the Egyptians before getting here, which was the most powerful empire on earth. So think about this. Here she is in the walled city, the kingdom of Jericho. It's all she's ever known. The way they practice economics, the way they relate to each other, that's what she's known. She looks out of her window and sees this other kingdom coming. Now the God of this other kingdom, the God of Israel, he had a name. He was known by Israel as Yahweh. So Rahab finds herself in this situation where she sees the mighty and powerful Yahweh on his way to Jericho, and she has to make a decision, a really big decision. Whose side am I going to be on? Will I keep my allegiance in the walled, wealthy, powerful city of which I'm presently a part? Or will I bend my knee to the kingdom that's on its way? See, Rahab was caught between two kingdoms. The kingdom that she had grown up in with its rules and way of life and economic system. And the kingdom of Yahweh that was coming and God's kingdom had a different set of rules, a different culture, a different economic system with different economic values and different economic policies. 
Rahab chose the kingdom of Yahweh. But why? Why did she switch her allegiance from the city that she lived in, the kingdom that she lived in, to this other kingdom? Why did she do that? Well, Joshua chapter 2, verses 9 through 11, says clearly why she did it. She did it because she had come to believe that at the end of the day, the kingdom that would still be standing when the dust settled would be different from the one she was currently living in. And she picked the winner. That's why she did it. She wanted to be with the kingdom that survived and thrived and lasted. She picked the right one. When the dust settled, it was not the kingdom of Jericho, the kingdom that she had lived her whole life in that was still standing. It was Yahweh and his kingdom that stood. And Rahab and her family, because they picked the right kingdom, they were spared. Now, as strange as this might seem, Rahab shows us the most important insight for us to grasp if we are going to learn a Christian view of economics, Rahab, you see, shows us what it's like to live in enemy territory. Let me come at this crucial point from another portion of Scripture. If you brought along a copy of the Bible, find Mark, Mark chapter 1. In Mark chapter 1, in verse 14, we have the first words out of Jesus' mouth in the gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 1, verse, in the first 13 verses, Jesus doesn't say anything. But then in verse 14, it says, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Now, what we see here is that when Jesus arrived on the scene, he talked to people like the spies talked to Rahab. A kingdom is coming. It's at hand. You better pick the winner. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Now, the word gospel means good news, the news that's good. It's just like Israel showing up as an invading army on the doorstep of Jericho. Notice, the first thing Jesus said is the time is fulfilled. Time is up. The kingdom of God is on the doorstep. God's kingdom is coming, and people need to realize that they, like Rahab, were living in another kingdom and God's kingdom was invading. So Jesus said, repent and believe the, 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 the news that's so good. In other words, change the way you live. Recognize that you're living in enemy territory, under enemy customs, enemy ways of thinking. And stop thinking in those kinds of ways. Stop thinking like that kingdom thinks. Instead, think like the kingdom of God thinks. Live like the kingdom of God lives. Adopt its values and its approach to, to life. Look out your window. 
Jesus said. Look at me. Now that I'm here in me, with me, God's kingdom is arriving. And you need to believe that that's good news. It's good that God's kingdom is here. It's good that my kingdom, the kingdom of God, is here because why? Because it's better than the kingdom you live in. It's better for you than the kingdom that you live in. And when the dust settles, the only kingdom that will be standing is not the strong, powerful Roman Empire with its dominating, seemingly irresistible, ubiquitous economic system. The kingdom that will be standing with an economic system is God's kingdom. So repent. Repent means stop thinking in Rome's kind of ways. Think in my kingdom's kind of ways. Let me show you one more example in the Bible where it approaches things in this kind of way. If you brought your Bible, find Colossians chapter 1. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 13 Paul is writing. Um, I'm convinced he's in jail in Ephesus when he's writing this. Somewhere around uh, 55, late in 55 or early in 56 of the first century AD. And he's writing to a group of Christians in the city of Colossae. And he says to them, Colossians 1.13. God has delivered us from the domain, the kingdom of darkness And transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. Now that's the same pattern as Jesus said in Mark chapter 1 verses 14 to 15. Now what is so important for us to see tonight is this. The news that's good, the good news, the gospel, is more than our souls being snatched away from this world to another world where our disembodied souls play harps for all eternity in some never-ending choir practice. The gospel is not about King Jesus rescuing us from creation, from the economic systems in which we live, and from the society in which we live. The gospel, the news that's good, is about Jesus bringing a kingdom that will reclaim the societies we live in, the economic systems we live in, every square inch of the cosmos. King Jesus is launching a new world right in the lap of the old world. He's launching a new world in which every Christian who is in Jesus might live and reign and work and worship in the resurrected and renewed heaven and earth. And what he's doing with us, with Christians, is this. Right in the middle of Colossae, right in the middle of Israel, right in the middle of Harrisonburg, he's creating a people marked out by his justice and righteousness, united to him by his spirit. And that's the news that's good. That's the good news. That's the gospel of the kingdom of God. In Luke chapter 4 verse 43, Jesus said, I must preach the good news of the kingdom to the other towns. That's the purpose for which I was sent. That that a new kingdom has arrived. The news that is so good, this news of the arrival of God's kingdom in Jesus, this was the central message of Jesus and his apostles. So today, right here in Harrisonburg, March 10th, 2019, each one of us 
is just a bit like Rahab. We live in one kingdom, a kingdom of this world. And when we look out the window, we see King Jesus and his kingdom headed our way. And we're confronted with the same question Rahab was facing. Whose side am I on? Will I keep my allegiance in the wealthy, friendly city of which I am presently a part? Or will I bend the knee to the kingdom that's on its way? Nobody can swear allegiance to two kingdoms. That's what Jesus said. No one can serve two masters. But it's more nuanced than that, isn't it? Our situation is a little more complicated than Rahab's. It's more like the Christians in Colossae that Paul wrote to. Jesus has already invaded our city. He was here before most of you were born. Now, some of you, I'm not. No, I'm joking. (laughs) Jesus has already invaded Harrisonburg. He got here long before any of us were born, and he didn't come to obliterate Harrisonburg. He didn't come to obliterate America. He didn't come to destroy the human kingdoms that we've grown up in, but he has come to conquer them and to reclaim them. After all, Colossians Chapter 1, verse 16 says, By Christ, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, every throne and every dominion and ruler and authority. All of it was created by and for Christ. So when it comes to money and economics, when it comes to the economy of Harrisonburg, when it comes to the neighborhoods we live in, It is our responsibility to accept the the invading kingdom of God. But this does not mean we abandon the community we live in. Our role is to swear allegiance to King Jesus and to become, as the church of Harrisonburg, whichever outpost of that church we're all a part of, Our job, our responsibility is to swear allegiance to King Jesus and for the Christians of this city, as the church of this city, to become an outpost, a colony of the Jesus kingdom amidst the kingdom of Harrisonburg. Our responsibility, those of us who are Christians, our responsibility is to declare in our words and our actions and our lives together in our economic practices, we are supposed to declare to the kingdoms of this world that there is another kingdom and there is another king and that king is Jesus and when the dust settles, that's the only one that's going to be standing. And he's reclaiming Harrisonburg because Harrisonburg is his. He's reclaiming what rightly belongs to him. He's reclaiming the economic systems of Harrisonburg because they belong to him. Because in him all things were created. And every throne and every ruler and every authority and every dominion belongs to him. He's reclaiming this city, this community, this valley. And when we live under the rule of Jesus, we are inviting the kingdom in which we live to join us in pledging allegiance to the world's rightful king. This means that those of us who are followers of Jesus in earthly kingdoms cannot and should not let these earthly kingdoms claim our primary allegiance. We live in the United States, we live in Virginia, we live in Harrisonburg. And while there are many aspects 
of these earthly kingdoms that may be close to God's design, all of these kingdoms fall short of God's kingdom. And we have to be willing to admit that. Look at it this way. Every earthly kingdom has its own way of doing things. Whether it's the United States or Sudan. Or the Dominican Republic or Kenya. Every earthly kingdom has customs and policies and practices when it comes to food and sex and family and religion. And we've got to admit that every kingdom has its way of approaching money. But when King Jesus welcomes us into his alternate kingdom, something strange happens. We discover a whole new world. Just like Rahab did when she bent her knee to the kingdom of Yahweh. When we are forgiven and welcomed into Jesus' kingdom, we discover that his kingdom looks very different from the kingdom we've grown accustomed to. Uh, For example, many of us are learning that our United States' kingdom has an entirely different set of values and behaviors when it comes to sexuality and gender. And it looks completely illogical to the Christian view of it. And the Christian view of sexuality and gender looks not only illogical, it looks downright immoral and harmful. I mean, these are like, this is a choice between two kingdoms, two kings, two entirely different sets of things. Last fall in our catechesis on sexuality and gender, God confronted us with the truth that his kingdom is radically different than the kingdom of the United States and Harrisonburg on these issues. And the burden we face for the next five weeks is to recognize the same is true of economics. The burden we face for the next five weeks is to recognize that King Jesus has his own economic policies, his own economic program that the contemporary economic worldview of Western civilization is frankly going to find irritating. You see, globalization is subtly shaping all of us in a particular way of thinking and behaving in our economic lives that is in many respects, not all respects, but in many important respects, antithetical to the economics of the kingdom of God. And I know that many of us know this, but over the last few years I've learned that there are implications of the economics of God's kingdom that many of us have not considered And to be completely honest, many of the implications of God's kingdom for economics are irritating to me. And I think that they will be to some of you, at least those of you who are like me. Now, don't get me wrong. There's some real good in the American economy. For example, the market-based economies of Western civilizations have generally rewarded human creativity and entrepreneurship and hard work. This is a good thing about free market economics. And they've provided unprecedented opportunities for many people to rise out of material poverty. And when we view this aspect, these aspects against the backdrop of human history, this is a phenomenal accomplishment. And yet, we must be willing 
to ask some serious questions about the overall impact of Western economics on human flourishing. Consider this. Between 1946 and 2014, the real income per capita tripled in the United States. Tripled between 1946 and 2014, real income per capita. At the same time, the self-reported happiness of the average, average American stayed the same. So if we're looking at a graph, tripled, real income per capita, happiness flatlined. And in the same general time period, a time period of serious economic growth, the suicide rate among people under the age of 24 increased by 137%. Remember the title is God, Money, and Human Flourishing. In fact, according to the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, suicide is currently the 10th highest cause of death in America. Suicide. Nearly 43,000 Americans commit suicide every year. More than three times that attempt it. Consider the stats on substance abuse in 2013. The, the most recent year I could find firm data. 30% of men and 16% of women 12 and older reported binge drinking in the previous month. 17.3 million Americans reported alcohol addiction or serious problems related to alcohol. And 4.2 million Americans met clinical criteria for dependence on marijuana use. In other words... For seven decades, we got wealthier, but not happier. Now, I know correlation doesn't necessarily imply causation, but what I'm going to try to show over these five weeks is that in this situation, correlation shows causation. And it's not just America. Similar results have been found for a number of other wealthy nations. And here's another shocking statistic. Over the last 10 years, Americans have reported a steady decline in overall life satisfaction. Despite, in the same 10 years, the average income per capita rising by 5%. So rising income last 10 years, declining life satisfaction. All this is happening in the wealthiest nation that has ever existed on earth. Indeed, substance abuse, mental illness, depression seem to have risen alongside rising incomes. Here's how Gene Twenge, an influential social psychologist, professor at San Diego University, here's how she summarized the data. Quote, I think the research tells us that modern life is not good for mental health. Obviously, there's a lot of good things about society and technological progress. And in a lot of ways, our lives are much happier, much easier than, say, our grandparents or our great-grandparents. But there's a paradox. We seem to have so much ease and relative economic prosperity compared to previous centuries. Yet, there's this growing dissatisfaction. There's this growing unhappiness. There are these mental health issues in terms of depression and anxiety. That's the end of her quote. The radical claim that I'm going to try to demonstrate over the next five weeks 
is that our unprecedented wealth and our decreasing overall well-being is wrapped up together with our current approach to economics. Let's call this the happiness paradox. We're getting wealthier and less happy. That's a paradox. Now, I'm going to briefly point out six other paradoxes that have surfaced at the heart of Western affluent economies. These six are described by Bob Kutzvard, an economist and philosopher. He was a member of Dutch Parliament and professor of economics and social philosophy at Free University of Amsterdam. First, we had the happiness paradox. It's just a paradox, right? You would kind of assume getting wealthier, getting happier, but it's going in opposite directions. Second is the scarcity paradox. Our society, a society of unprecedented wealth, also experiences unprecedented scarcity. At the same time that average incomes have risen so substantially, so has the overall sense that we don't have what we need. I don't understand this entirely, but Hutzvard says the most, the most kind of revealing signal of escalating scarcity at the center of unprecedented wealth is the skyrocketing government deficits of the West. Why do deficits soar seemingly out of control in the wealthy nations, even under governments committed to deficit reduction? And he says this is a paradox. Third, there's the poverty paradox. Poverty is rising at an alarming rate in the wealthiest societies. A recent report from the Federal Reserve Bank of Minneapolis states that the rise of inequality in the U.S. has reached a 45-year high. According to the U.S. Census Bureau, the percentage of American people in poverty increased 12.2%. From 12.2 to 15.9, so from 12 to 16 percent between 2000 and 2012, while the number of people in poverty increased from 33 million to 48 million. At the same time, almost 20 percent of American children lived in poverty between 2000 and 2012, up from 14 percent in 2009. And that's it, that was its highest level since 1993. So, what I'm saying is that we are experiencing rising production and rising numbers of the poor, a widening income gap, and rising debt loads. In an age of unprecedented wealth, how do we account for that? It's a paradox. There's another paradox, fourth paradox, the time paradox. For more than two centuries, economists predicted that increased wealth in modern societies would bring in more leisure time. Have any of you read these like, uh, predictions in the 50s that the, hard, the problem was going to be finding things for people to do? <laughs> and yet over the last 25 years, our pace of life has accelerated dramatically. We are working harder and harder and more and more. And now we struggle with the effects of stress and burnout at unprecedented levels. Why is this? Why has the overworked American appeared precisely when most people in Western society are materially better off than they were before? Again, it's a paradox. Why is this happening? A fifth paradox is what we can call the care paradox. Care, C-A-R-E. 
The capacity to provide care, including quality health care, is declining in wealthy societies. Nursing and other services for the elderly, integration supports for the handicapped, and aid for children in need struggle because of the rising financial constraints. Health care costs have reached a crisis state. Not to mention diseases of affluence, such as obesity and type 2 diabetes, are rising as the wealth index rises. How is it that a rising standard of living is not raising the overall level of health? It's a paradox. Six, the employment paradox. Unemployment seems to accompany modern societies as an, an enduring structural problem. It seems impervious to conventional solutions. And at the same time, reports are beginning to come in that indicate society's need is for more workers. We're hearing this over and over and over. The need for workers as we continue to have increasing numbers of unemployed people. Why does the problem of unemployment seem so unsolvable? It's a paradox. Seventh, the environmental paradox. Why is it that advanced technologies, more economic resources available to us than ever before, and a series of international agreements have not been able to lessen, much less reverse, the rate of environmental destruction? Our global ecosystem is becoming alarmingly unstable. Species are disappearing at astonishing rates. Why? Dear, why is it that during a time of unparalleled prosperity, why is it that the world's environmental problems seem to be slipping out of control? Again, my point is that we are richer, but we are not flourishing. And that a critical need we have is for Christians to consider the Bible's approach to our economic lives. And I'm going to warn you, when we read the Bible together over the next several weeks, we will sometimes be tempted to think the Bible's approach to economics is not only foolish, it's entirely implausible. But my goal is for us to come to grips with this fact. King Jesus welcomes us into his kingdom. And he is calling us to live as colonies of that kingdom within Harrisonburg, within this particular economy, this particular place where we live. And so our challenge is going to be, how do we possibly begin to embrace our king's economic program here in your particular neighborhoods? in this particular city, in our particular homes, with our particular businesses? How can we grow in our economic practices so that we bear witness to the kingdom that is to come? Bearing witness to the kingdom that is to come, to the city that is going to come, and when the dust settles, it will be the one standing. So if you've got a copy of that little flyer I put on the back table... Tonight is just introduction, but after tonight, there's going to be four key issues. First, mauled by money. Money is a powerful force. 
that threatens all of us. And the answer is not to give it all away. Poverty doesn't make you less threatened by the idol. The answer is not necessarily to make less of it. How, how do we come to grips with the fact that Jesus talked an awful lot about the power of mammon? We think that because we don't have statues people bow down to, that we don't have gods in America. You know, um, in the Old Testament, people sacrificed their babies to Molech so that they would get better crops. In other words, they sacrificed their babies to a god of money so that they could flourish. Isn't that exactly what happens on Wall Street when a guy works 80, 90, 100 hours a week for week after week after week and he lays his child down on the altar of mammon? But because it's not a statue with glowing hands that are burning on fire and the baby's burning up, do you think that there are people in America who've ever committed an abortion because of the economic infeasibility? See, we think that we don't live with idols because we don't have physical idols, but we do. So that will be the first thing. How do we bend our economic lives toward God? The second issue, justice is important, but supper is essential. How do we bend our economic lives toward community? Uh, the, the fourth week, God's passion for work. How do we deal with structural unemployment on a local level? On a neighborhood level, from our own particular resources, those of us who all we've got is our meager income in our house, how do we bend our economic lives? How does a church bend its economic life? How does a business owner bend its economics to take the poor seriously? The Bible challenges charity that actually hurts people. The Bible calls us to offer the poor a stake in the production side of economy. Not in the handout side. How do we come to grips with that? And how do we translate that into our own businesses and our own households today? And then finally, look, I'm not going to argue for free market or for socialism, for Democrat or Republican. I, I think that I'm going to challenge both. God is not a Democrat nor a Republican. How do we bend our economic lives to, toward those who have generationally been disenfranchised, been marginalized from the production side of the economy. Now, of course, I'm not saying that this covers all there is to say about the biblical economic vision, but my hope is that by taking these four, by exploring scripture on these subjects, we'll begin to catch a glimpse of the vision of God's economy as it's revealed in God's word for God's world today. Now, this is going to be very hard. It's going to be really hard for the next several weeks for two reasons. First of all, proclaiming King Jesus in enemy territory gets you in trouble. In every culture in, in which the church has taken root, the surrounding culture has simply refused to accept certain aspects of Jesus' kingdom. And I suspect that our assumed economy, that the assumptions that are made about economics in America, some of them are just as countercultural as the assumptions our society is making about sexuality and gender. We must remember 
that the economy of God's kingdom will be countercultural. He talked a lot about money, an awful lot about money. Secondly, so that's gonna, it's going to be hard for that reason. It's going to be hard because it's going to be countercultural. Second, it's going to be hard because we ourselves have been deeply deformed in our economic lives by living in a kingdom that falls short of God's kingdom. We've just, we've been deformed. And, and we, we need to have the courage to believe what Rahab needed to believe. That that approaching kingdom was better. That that approaching king's economic policies were better. That that approaching king's view of everything was better. That when Jesus is in the room, he is always the smartest person in the room. And that he brings a kingdom, not just an escape valve for your soul. But he, kings, he brings a total way of living that includes your economics. Look, economics are as important to God's kingdom as they are to your life. God's kingdom can have nothing to do with money as much as you can have nothing to do with money. And it's about more than generosity. Generosity is definitely the foundation of it. But it needs to filter out and flesh out all the way through. And there is a lot of ways that we've been deformed that we need to pray through Lent. God, help us over the next few weeks to begin to see the water we swim in. You know, the old joke is whoever figured out what water was, it wasn't a fish. The, the hardest thing to do is to see the thing you're in. That's why it's so hard for us to talk about sexuality and gender to our society. We've got to do the same with economics. 